Uh, so we're in Mark chapter 10, and we're teaching through this book, telling the story of Jesus, and we've come down to this last week in the life of Christ before the cross. And we're walking with Jesus and his followers to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be tried unjustly, he's going to be found guilty because some people make up stories about him, and then he's going to be crucified. And that's going to happen not because they captured him, not because he couldn't get away, not because something happened accidentally, but it's going to happen right according to plan. In fact, he's been telling the disciples that that's what he's going to Jerusalem to do. In Mark 10, 32, it says, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and then who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell saying, see, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus has been telling the disciples this, but still they don't get it. They don't get how the Messiah, the one that God said would come to be the king, to end all kings, to rescue them and to rule over everything. They don't understand how that could be the one who comes to die. It seems like if you're going to Jerusalem to be the king, dying on the way to becoming the king messes up those plans. And so, so they don't have a category in their mind for a king who would die. He's either going to be king and not die, or die and not be king. But in their minds, he really can't be both. Now, he's told them that he's the king. He's told them he's going to die. But like Paul Simon says, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. So there are things that he's saying about dying. They're not getting it, thinking maybe he's speaking figuratively and looking at him as the king. And they're thinking for us, this means we're going to get power. We're going to get status. We're going to get money. We're going to get independence for our nation again. We're going to kick out these Roman occupiers. So that's what we're going to Jerusalem to do. We're going to Jerusalem so Jesus can be the king who reigns. And the truth is he was going to Jerusalem to be the king who reigns, but he was going to be a king who reigned over far more than just Rome He was going to reign over their enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's not just going to conquer these human invaders, these human occupiers. He's going to conquer the biggest enemy that we have. And the way that he's going to do it is not like a normal king conquers. He's going to do it by serving and by laying down his life. In fact, he explained this to him in Mark 10, verse 42. It says, Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's been telling them this, but they are not getting it. They have in their minds one kind of king and one kind of king only, the only kind of king the world has ever known, the kind of king who comes in and he's powerful, and if he has enemies, he defeats them, he has them put to death, and then he takes over. And so a king who dies makes no sense to them whatsoever. Um, I know uh, for our kids, uh, they have in their minds what a vacation is. And because we have four little kids, it's very hard to take vacations. Um, Most places, you actually have to get two hotel rooms if you're going to have that many people, um, which is pricey. And so so our kids, uh, their vacations usually revolve around a wedding that I'm doing. Um, So so we go somewhere else. Like our last vacation was to Connecticut, and we went out to Connecticut, and we, um, we stayed at a nice vacation. But they know that part of vacation is I put on a suit, and then I go do a wedding, and then, and then I come back. And we do sightseeing, and all the places that we go to sightsee, we end up having wedding dance parties there. So, um, so in Connecticut, we went to Chris Lloyd's boyhood home. Uh, 
parents were very wealthy, um, oil wealth or something. They had this gigantic mansion. And so my kids got to run around in Christopher Lloyd's bedroom. And um, they've never seen Back to the Future, so they don't know how cool that is. But, uh, but they saw this mansion, this really big house, and then we got to have a big dance party at that mansion. So, so my kids think vacation is we go to exotic destinations, dad puts on a suit and does a wedding, and we dance at those destinations, and then we come home. So that's the only kind of vacation they can think of because they don't remember a time when we took a bigger one. But right now we're saving so that one of these years we can do a gigantic Disney vacation with the family. It's either that or college, one of the two. And so we, um, sorry, it's a Jim Gaffigan joke. But, um, and so, so we're going to go there. And when we tell them that's vacation, they're going to be going, when's the wedding? Um, when, well, are we going to have the dance party here at Cinderella's Castle? What's going on? They, they think they know what a vacation is. They don't really know. They, they don't know what a vacation could be. And these disciples, in the same way, they know what a king is. They know that he's someone who conquers, but they don't know how great a king could be. They don't know how much reign a king could actually have and how much he could really change the world. They don't know what they have in Jesus yet. I mean, God had promised them a king. In Jeremiah 33, verse 14, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteous, the Lord. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So God had promised this king who would come from the line of David. Um, David was this great king, a man after God's own heart. Uh, Things went badly toward the end of his life where David sinned. He committed adultery. He committed murder. Things blew up. But still, God, because he's faithful, even when we're faithless, he pledged his faithfulness to David. And he said, there's going to be a king that always sits on your throne. There's going to be another king like David who comes. So people knew that there were those promises, that this one, the son of David, the descendant of David would come and take his rightful place on that throne in Jerusalem, rule and reign and kick out their oppressors, and they're starting to sense that this is who Jesus is. So Mark 10, verse 46, it says, They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, He began, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So Jesus is on the road, and a huge crowd has gathered. And when when they're saying that a huge crowd has gathered, these people are probably thinking army. They're probably thinking he's going into Jerusalem to go to war. People are all around him. I'm sure there are needy people. There are sick people all around him crying out for him to heal them because word has spread about how this guy cleansed a leper, about how this guy raised the dead, about how this guy healed a widow's son. He did all these miracles. And so I'm sure people were coming begging for miracles all along the road. But there's this one guy, a blind guy named Bartimaeus, and the way that he's calling out to Jesus, the way that he's begging is just a little bit different. He calls out and yells out, and even though they told him to be quiet, he calls Jesus the son of David. Gospel of Mark, that anyone uses that term to describe Jesus. He's labeling Jesus as that king that Jeremiah had predicted, the one who would come, the one that God said would be there. So Jesus hears that, and he's walking, everybody's crying out to him, he hears the one guy call him son of David, and Jesus stops the whole procession, puts the thing in reverse, says, go get that guy. And they bring the guy up, 
who has called Jesus the son of David. And so now we're going to see what does Jesus do with that? Uh, Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So here's this guy yelling out, Jesus, you're the son of David. And as a a way of putting his stamp of approval on the faith of Bartimaeus, on the thing that he's saying, Jesus heals him. So clearly this king, he is the son of David. Jesus doesn't correct him. He says, you're right about who you say that I am. So you can feel this excitement building. The king is now headed toward the capital. He's the son of David. He's got an army gathering around him. And so everyone's expecting for him to go there and overthrow. So now chapter 11, verse 1. It says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the, mountain of, uh, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So Jesus is headed into Jerusalem, and he needs a donkey. Um, and it's not just that he's tired. Jesus isn't saying, I'm tired of all this walking. Give me a donkey. Um, he, he's got something bigger that's going on here in his mind. Uh, but why a donkey? You know, why would a king ride to war? Why would he ride to Jerusalem on a donkey? Because that's a pretty lame animal. A moped of the horse world, where you know, um, it's kind of a toy version of the real thing, um, where you know, mopeds aren't the most manly vehicles. And, and you say, hey, hang on, I drive a moped. Um, listen, I drive a Pontiac Gaztec, um, so I am not in a position to make fun of your vehicle. But, um, but I think we can all just be honest with ourselves and say mopeds are not manly. Um, they're, they're not that great of a vehicle, and, and neither is a donkey. I mean, a king goes to war on a noble steed, and Jesus says, go into town, untie a donkey, and get it for me. And the reason for this is because there was a prophecy. In 518 BC, Zechariah described the entry of this ultimate king into Jerusalem. And he said this in Zechariah 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So he's saying that there's a king who would come who's righteous, he has salvation, he's going to save you. And he's not sitting on a war horse, he's sitting on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah had predicted that the king would come, that he would come into Jerusalem, and he'd be coming riding not a horse of war, but riding a donkey, an animal of peace. And he would rule, he would cut off his enemies, but he would do it in a peaceful way. That there was a king who was coming who would be a humble king. And Jesus wants everyone to know that he's the one who would fulfill that prophecy. He wants everyone to know exactly who he is. And he wants the way that he enters that city to be clear to everybody there. He wants all of them to know that he's that one. He's the son of David. He's the one that God had promised would come. You know, this would be like if you were going into Washington, D.C., about who you are, and you say, we're going to get a motorcade together, and we're going to have lots of black cars, we're going to have police on bikes, we're going to have guys in suits on bikes, and they're going to have earpieces, and they're all going to drive all around me as I drive into Washington, D.C., we know that that's how the president travels. And so Jesus here is saying, I'm going to travel like that king would travel. I'm going to travel like that son of David because I am him. Mark 11, verse 3. 
So he sends him to get the donkey, and he says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. This is awesome, a little bit of a Jedi mind trick. Um, they, they go in, and here's this colt, here's this donkey tied up, and they start untying it. doesn't belong to them, and they're just bringing it out to Jesus. And some people come, and they say, the Lord, the master needs it. And they say, oh, okay, if the master needs it, go ahead. Well, that doesn't happen. You know, if, if we're looking out the window, and we see that someone has one of those Slim Jim things, and they're breaking into a car, um, and then we go outside and say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, oh, the master needs the car. We're probably not going to say... Oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Tell the master I said hi, and then go back to what we're doing. But these guys go, and they say, the Lord has need of it, the master needs it, and they say, okay, this is not the donkey you're looking for. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, a couple big things here. First of all, Jesus wasn't rich. He didn't have a saddle. Um, He's sitting on a makeshift saddle of cloaks on the back of that donkey. Um, And and he's sitting on a donkey that no one has ever sat on before. Now, Jesus asked for that kind of donkey for a reason. It wasn't that he was like a germaphobe that couldn't sit on a donkey. It was because he was trying to show something about who he was. Um, I had a friend whose dad had horses, and I was there one day when his dad was breaking a horse. And so here's this horse that nobody had ever been on before, and it was, it was fun to watch because he was going up, and he wasn't just looking at it in its eyes and whispering to it. I mean, he was beating that horse to get it to calm down. He would jump on the horse, and the horse would buck him off. At one point, he was on the back of the horse, and the horse rolled over to try to get him off of it, which you can understand. You can, I mean, if you're a horse and someone just jumps on your back all of a sudden, that's surprising. But when you jump on a horse that nobody's been on before, it looks like a rodeo. Here Jesus gets on this donkey that nobody's been on before, and he rides it. This should have been a rodeo, but Jesus has dominion over creation. He's showing here what kind of king he is. Because honestly, a donkey doesn't care that it's a king jumping on his back. A donkey's not going to start, listen, that guy's the king. He's not going to say, oh, sorry, I'll stop. He doesn't care who you are, but here's Jesus, who's some kind of king that can get on that donkey, and that donkey submits to him. So Jesus has authority like no other king has before. Um, Jesus, we've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him cure disease. We've seen him heal a withered hand. And here he sits on this unbroken donkey and he rides it. He's showing his power. He's showing his dominion. And so people are getting excited. Verse 8, it says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So they lay out their coats like a red carpet for the king coming into town. And then they took palm branches and they started waving them around. And this was something that that we hear that and we know that today is Palm Sunday. We know that's just something you do. But for them, the reason they were doing that is because the palm branch had become like a nationalist symbol. It had become almost like a flag for Israel. Uh, Almost 200 years before, there was a guy named Judas Maccabee in occupiers. The Syrians were in there. They were holding the land. They weren't supposed to hold it. They were the bad guys. And so Judas got them out of there. He kicked them out, and they celebrated by waving palm branches. And so for 200 years, the flag of Israel pretty much had been the palm branch. So here comes Jesus. He's coming into town. They've laid out the the red carpet, given him the royal treatment. They're waving their flags. They're celebrating. They're shouting. Verse 9, it says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so here they're singing and shouting. They're singing the Hillel songs. And these are psalms of triumph and victory. Uh, This is kind of the biblical, more God-centered equivalent of We Will Rock You. And so... So he's coming in, and these are, these are battle cries. I mean, these are chants. They're celebrating the fact that they're about to win. They're celebrating the fact that they have a winning team. People act when they're going to win. Um, we, we can't identify with this because we root for Buffalo teams, but they, um, when a team's going to win, you sing, you shout, you celebrate because we're about to get the victory. And so here comes Jesus, and they're singing and shouting. They're, they're yelling out some of the psalms that were the battle psalms. They're celebrating a victory that's about to happen. So in the minds of the people who knew the Bible, there are all kinds of familiar Bible passages that are flashing back into their minds. Um, They're hearing Zechariah's prophecy about the colt, about the donkey, about the humble king who rides in. They're probably remembering a time in 1 Kings when King Solomon was anointed king. Uh, Here's what happened there in uh, 1 Kings 1.38. It says, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. And brought him to Gihon. There, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long. So there was a king before who rode in on a donkey, and when he got into town, they poured oil on his head and they celebrated the fact that now he's being crowned king. And it was a big deal because in the days of Solomon, there was another guy who set himself up as king, Adonijah, and he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't the rightful king. And then Solomon comes in on a donkey. They announced that Solomon's the rightful king, and he was supposed to be kind of like a king of peace. He comes, he takes power. People say, finally, we've got our king here. Adonijah goes and he hides in the temple. He's holding onto the horns of the altar, which kind of gave him amnesty. And Solomon came up and said, here's the deal. If you just bow a knee to me, if you'll be loyal, then you can live. And so for a little while, he's loyal, but then he steps out of line and Solomon has him killed. And you read those first few chapters of 1 Kings, and you see Solomon killing the enemies of the kingdom of God. He comes in as a king of peace, but ends up shedding blood, ends up killing enemies. Jesus is coming into oil on his head to anoint him the king. They're going to weave together a crown of thorns and put that on his head. He's not going to slay his enemies when he gets to town. He's going to pray for them from the cross. He's going to die for them. Jesus is coming into town, but he's coming as a true and better Solomon, a real peaceful king, a real humble king, a real good guy, the one that we're all waiting for. So that's what they were celebrating on Palm Sunday. You know, for all of us, this has huge implications. You know, for one, we all have this sense that we need a king. We have the sense that we need someone to rule and to reign and to make things better. Uh, We we have this sense that things should be better out there and we need someone to come and rule. And and in our country, I know we've rejected the idea of a king. We had a little spat about that a couple hundred years ago. Um, But still, every four years, you see the way that we celebrate our new candidate and the way that he's going to come and solve all of our problems. And then a few months in, we realize that he doesn't do it. And we look around the world and you see things like Arab Spring going on where they're celebrating new kings, new rulers, but they end up being just the same as the old rulers. A few weeks ago, Hugo Chavez died, and he was supposed to be this great ruler who was going to help the poor and bless them and and stamp out corruption and make sure that poor people were blessed in their country, and he died worth over a billion dollars. So it looks like he had kept some for himself. So we look at all these kings that we think will save the day, and none of them save the day. 
And even if the kings we try to set up for ourselves aren't in politics, we're all looking for that ruler to come and fix things. We want that new boss who will come and fix our company and make things run there. We want a new pastor who will come and be righteous and just and holy in all of his ways and help us to live more for Jesus. We have this innate human uh, tendency to blame our problems on something outside of us. Better if there's a better king. I'll be better if there's a better church. I'll be better if there's a better boss. I'll be better if I've got a better spouse. My problem is outside of me. It's always out there. And if I could just fix that one thing out there, then I'd be happy, then I'd have joy, then I'd be better. That's just the way that we roll as people. We want to blame other people. We want to blame everything out there. We don't like to look at our hearts and say there's something wrong with me. But when Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the ultimate king to solve our ultimate problem, he didn't solve immediately the political problem. He solved the heart problem. So again, we go back to Zechariah 9, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You know, Jesus is a king who, who can cause us to really rejoice because he takes care of our real problems. He takes care of our sin where the problem really is, which is in our hearts. And Jesus, after he goes into Jerusalem, uh, a week later on Sunday, he's rising from the dead after... He goes into that town, and if you could kind of picture it, they take him, they nail him to a cross outside of the city in a place called the Place of the Skull because of the way the rock formations looked. So if you can picture a skull with a cross stuck into it, Jesus is going after the big enemy, which is death. He's, he's created a head wound in death. He, he's defeating sin. He's defeating our big problems. We always think our big problems are out there, but according to the gospel, our big problem is in here, and Jesus died to defeat our biggest problem. So he can be the king that can actually make us rejoice. He can be the king who's actually good, who's actually just, who can actually bring us peace. Because the ultimate peace that we need isn't political, it's not a good job, it's not the right neighborhood, it's not the right spouse. The ultimate peace that we need is peace with God. And Colossians says this, it says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. So when we look at King Jesus and what kind of king he is and, and how he ruled and how he reigned, we see where our real problem is. It's inside of us, and then we can rejoice because he died to take care of that real problem. He died to take care of Satan, sin, and death so we can have hope. So we need to hope in Christ. And secondly, we've got to realize that anytime we believe something that's true about Jesus, it should change the way that we live. If you could turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, learning about Jesus, learning about his kingship, learning about who he is, that he's the one who can cause us to rejoice, that should change us on a deep level. That should change us on a heart level. It shouldn't just be where we walk away from church saying, great, I've got some facts in my head. I know some stuff now. I'm more knowledgeable. We should be able to walk out knowing Jesus more and, and transformed more into his likeness. And this is what Philippians says. Philippians 2.1, it says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God. You know, all throughout the scripture, we're taught that we become like the things that we worship. And when we worship vain and empty things, we become vain and empty ourselves. If we worship the true Jesus of the Bible, then we start to become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more radical Christians. And when you hear a radical Christian, you think, well, that's a bad thing. Um, You know, I see religious radicals in the news, and and I don't want to be one of those guys. There's a big difference between a religious radical and a radical Christian. A radical Christian is someone who's a worshiper of Jesus and becomes more and more like Jesus. It doesn't make us more of a jerk. It makes us more like Jesus, who, though he was a king, was still humble. We look at Jesus and we see his character. We see the way that he lived. We see his death. And the more that that hits us in those corners of our heart that don't believe, the more we become like him. The more we start to obey this Philippians passage where we see the one who laid down his life, and if we worship him and become like him, we or out of conceit, because we've got a big head. We, we look at Jesus, who gave his life for the lives of his enemies, and that should make us people who count other people more important than ourselves, who consider others first in their preferences. It would make us people who, like Jesus, look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of other people. We look at Christ, and as we worship him and start to develop his mind, the, we, we are worshiping this one who made himself nothing, And we start to make ourselves like nothing so that we can serve and bless other people. Knowing Jesus, believing in him, believing that he's the king who's strong and powerful but also humble should radically transform us in every way. It should make us people who are humble with one another and lay down our rights and preferences and our interactions with other people. It should also make us people who love our city and serve our city, and give ourselves for our city, and don't worry so much about exhausting ourselves. We worship the one who died for those that he loved. Also, we worship the one who died for his enemies. So at times, as Christians, we'll have enemies that that arise in our town, enemies that arise in our neighborhoods, and there's a temptation to want to put up our fists and start fighting those enemies. But we look at Jesus, and he's the one who died for his enemies. And so if we worship him and we become more like him, then we just become the most life-giving people in town. It really changes us into a different kind of person if we're Christians. And so the call for all of us today is to see Jesus as our king, to worship him as king, but to be so transformed by the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus we made up, that we become more like him, that we become humble servants ourselves. Uh, For now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. The good news of Christianity is not that we can do a bunch of good things to to get ourselves saved. Christianity is not if we work real hard and maybe protest enough that we can change the culture around us. The good news of Christianity starts with the diagnosis that the problem is inside of us. That our problem is sin. problem is death. We have a real problem in our enemy, Satan. But the good news of Christianity is that Jesus came to be the king who conquered all of that. And the way that he conquered wasn't from a war horse. It wasn't with a bow and arrow. The way that he conquered was by laying down his life. He conquered as a humble king. So if you're here today and you know you're sinful, and the Bible says that. It says there's no one righteous, not even one. 
We're more sinful than we could ever imagine. But then if you'll believe that there's one who came to conquer your sin, there's one who came to die for you, if you'll believe that Jesus Christ, who's all God and all man, came and he died, he was buried, and he rose again, and he did that to pay the price for your sin, and to... then the promise of Scripture is that you'll turn from sin and from unbelief and turn to him and believe only in him. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. And he'll defeat your greatest enemy right in the heart. He deals a death blow to death and sin. He does it for us. He's the king who conquered for us because we just couldn't conquer our real enemy on our own. And so if today you'll turn from sin and unbelief and turn to Jesus, he'll forgive you and save you and make you new. If you're here today and you're a Christian, just ask yourself this question, who's my king? Who am I ultimately yielded to? Who do I worship? Who is ultimate in my life? And one of the best ways to know who's ultimate for us is to look at the way that we live. It's not just the things we say on Sunday, the things we sing on Sunday, or what, what box we put our offerings in. The way that we know who our king is in our lives. Can you look at your life and see that in your life you've become increasingly humble? You've become more and more of a servant. You've been more willing to pour out your life for the lives of those around you. Been more willing to hold all of your resources loosely, whether they're emotional or financial or efforts, whatever they are, you hold those things loosely so that you can be a blessing to other people. Because the one that we worship held nothing back. He gave everything. And if we become like the one that we worship, we should see more and more shadows of that in our lives. We should be transformed to be more and more like him. Just ask yourself, are there, are there places where rivalry and envy have crept in? Are there places where your preferences have become the ultimate drivers in your life? Have there been disputes and dissensions not caused by, by real important issues that have become the big deal? Well, confess those things and listen to the scripture that says don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And if we don't see that increasingly growing in our lives, then our problem is a gospel belief problem. We need to turn from our sin, turn from our unbelief, and believe the gospel. Believe in what Jesus did for us to defeat our ultimate enemy. And the ultimate enemy really is inside of us. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our king, but that you're a humble king that you're a king who came not on a horse but on a donkey. You're a king who came not to get something out of your subjects but to give your life for your subjects. And so we're here to worship you this morning. Uh, Lord, uh, we, we thank you that those crowds worshiped you, and I pray that, that in our hearts we would too and that we'd become more like you as we do. Amen.